Welcome to the first Intuition Podcast. On this episode, we look at common issues facing students. We discuss them with Alex, one of our tutors, and hopefully can share with you some insights and ways that you can manage your studies. As ever, we recorded the session in front of a live Zoom audience, and if you'd like to join a future show, you can register for them. There'll be a link in our show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Forum and Podcast. My name is Ben Bullman. We're joined this evening with a live group of students on Zoom and my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Evening, Ben. We missed you last week. So I I understand that you were were kind of delayed and then you had to rush to get to a netball game. And I think that everyone that's listening from last week is dying to find out how did the netball game go? So I'll, I'll, I'll keep you in suspense there for a moment. Yes, I was in London last week and I made the mistake of buying a cheaper train ticket, which was good from one sense, but really limited the trains I could travel home on and meant the train I did have to come home on to Peterborough stopped at every station between St Pancreas and um, Peterborough. So it was quite a slow journey home. But I did get to the netball match on time. Um, my daughter... I know I would say this because I'm a really proud dad, but but she did play really, really well. And they had a convincing win, which was really pleased to go and see. I'm actually taking her tonight. Tonight's game is slightly later, though. We're not kicking off until eight. Kicking off the wrong term. Um, tipping off. Tipping off. Tipping off till eight o'clock tonight. So um, I've got time to, to to join the lovely listeners on the the student forum this evening. How's your week been, Dave? What have you been up to? Busy. I've been visiting clients. I've been um, going to loads of various different meetings. I I went to an amazing college on Friday where it's a a college that's been newly renovated and it it specialises in kind of technology. And one of their classrooms, I call it classroom, it's not really a classroom. I, I went in and it was completely green all of the walls were green the floor was green and it was like I'd gone on to like a motion capture um kind of like movie sets and they were doing really cool stuff with virtual reality they did have someone that had all like the little kind of reflective things on a suit all over their body um and they were like doing motion capture to make it like a video game uh, like a video game they had this enormous room that was almost just an entire wall was a huge screen it was just out of this world what they did my favorite thing they showed me is something called a tesla suit which is a suit that you wear on where you put on it costs about 50 grand and um, it can it, it simulates various different kind of things that you can feel so it can make it fit you're wearing it and you can put your virtual reality visor on and it can make it feel like it's raining on you or it can make it feel like there's wind Um, and they said they do some police training where they can actually make it feel like you've been tasered which I just thought was really, really cool. Can't see how we use any of it in our classrooms because I, I don't think it would be fair to our students to taser them, you know, midway through a tax lecture. But uh, it was just incredible to see what kind of other like, teaching facilities are out there for, for kind of different qualifications and for kind of different apprenticeships and stuff like that. So really, really amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'd describe the feeling of being tasered as cool. I think it sounds a bit extreme, <laughs> but um, I do quite like the sound of that, um, I suppose, fourth dimension to virtual reality. That's that's a way to go. Have you dabbled much with VR headsets? Have you got one at home? We, we have got an Oculus at home. 
Um, and, and the thing, to be fair, the thing that really kind of, for me, kind of puts a barrier is the fact you've got to have controllers. And so it's artificial the way that you interact with the world. So the minute, you know, when you can put on haptic gloves and wear a suit and, you know, you, you, it's got all of those kind of sensors in it and things like that, that, that to me will be a massive game change with virtual reality. Wow, maybe maybe a direction our classes will go um, in the future. Got got visions now of someone doing a, a virtual reality bank reconciliation or something in a in an assessment where you've got to kind of do the <laughs> the joining stuff up. Um, yeah, maybe we'll have a think about that. But that sounds really exciting, really cool. I know something that is a bit of a passion of yours, trying to bring as much technology and technological advancement to the the stuff we do. Yeah. Um, and. I think sometimes we do lose sight of how that has developed, even in in the kind of space of the recent five, six years for us. And maybe maybe an episode that we could revisit the the technological advances we've seen in the classroom over the last few years. We have got a topic for this evening. So th this one's going to be a good listen to anybody that is. Well, I suppose anybody that's a student, but most particularly anyone that maybe is new. Um, the theme we've been given this evening are common issues that a lot of our students are facing. Now, for each of them, we've probably done a more in-depth review at an episode of the podcast. So this one might be a good one to whet your appetite and then maybe go back and search for previous episodes. It might throw up some bits that actually give us some inspiration to do a further episode in the future, drilling into one of these in a bit more detail. But I really wanted tonight to be a bit more of a, a short, sharp. These are some of the issues. Dave, I'm going to share them with you in a moment to get your views and perspective on them. But we've also got a guest this evening. So I'm going to introduce him next. Good evening, Alex Griffiths. Thank you very much, Benny. Uh, again, nice to see you. Nice to see you as well, Dave. So thank you for having me. So Alex is one of our fabulous tutor team based predominantly in Cambridge, although he does get around the, the, the region quite regularly. Alex, you've not been on the podcast before. I don't know how you've managed to dodge it. Bearing in mind, this is episode number 127 that we're recording this evening. But um, you, you've managed to duck us so far, but I gave you nowhere to hide this week. We usually have our guests give a bit of backstory just to introduce themselves at the start. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving us a couple of minutes to, to tell the listeners how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so um, I was in practice um, quite a long time ago now, um, but I actually studied with first intuition. So I did all my ACCA exams um, being taught. Actually, I was taught by both of you. I was taught um, by you, Ben, for some audit and Dave, I believe you taught me some tax. So, um, and yeah, I loved coming into college much more than I did going to work. Um, thought that all the tutors had much more fun in their jobs than what I was doing in mine. And I really do like talking. Um, so um, yeah, I've been oh, with first intuition. What will be ten years in May? So um, I predominantly teach kind of strategy, financial management, management accounting papers, and okay as well. So. Um, and that tends to be across all the syllabuses, so it's all gone very quick. And I know you're incredibly modest, but you do a great job with it as well. I'm always blown away by the feedback we see from our students on you, particularly Alex, on the, the, the scores that your classes get. And so I'm really pleased to have you on tonight to share your view on some of the, the regular things, the issues that we hear regularly from students. 
So what I thought we'd do, I've got a few of these regular hot topics that students come to us with. I'm going to throw them out there. Maybe Dave, if you could give us a bit of perspective and then Alex, and then we'll, we'll kind of draw that one to a conclusion. So in no particular order, the first thing that I hear a lot from students is the questions in my folder, the tasks that I'm practicing are not exactly the same as the ones that I then go and get in the exam. So what's the point in doing them? Dave, what's your take on that if a student comes to you with that observation? Yeah, it is. I, I, I'm I'm going to call this the frequently asked questions section or, or episode of the podcast. So you're absolutely right. It, it's it always get the but I've done I've did the last exam and the exam was nothing like the the questions that I did for homework. So yeah, absolutely. So what's the point in doing it? The, the reality is that when you go into an exam, you, you are never going to get questions that are exactly the same as the questions that you've done for homework. But what you've got to get used to is going into an exam and facing a question that you haven't seen before and learning how to deal with it. Now, what you're doing by doing practice questions is you're doing a question you haven't seen before and you're working out how to complete it. So what you're actually training yourself to do is to be familiar with the idea of going in and tackling something that you haven't seen. So the, the real important thing to do is to make sure that those practice questions you're doing them under exam conditions. So you're doing them without referring to your notes and you're attacking them as you would in the exam. And that's what you're training yourself to do. You're not training yourself to be able to memorize a series of answers that you can regurgitate in the exam. You're training yourself to be able to deal with any type of question that you get in the exam. And the more different types of questions you do, the better you're gonna be trained to attempt something you haven't seen before in the exam. Alex, maybe I come to you now. What what what's your take on that from a, a tutor perspective? Yeah, I hundred percent agree with Dave. Um, the questions that we have got as well are there to kind of not always just naturally reflect the exam, but it's there to kind of test your understanding by laying things out in a different way, so that actually it's testing your ability to be adaptable. Uh, okay, which is which is what your work's trying to do as well. You're not going to get asked the exact same questions every day in work. A lot of it is kind of problem solving and the problems that you're tasked with each day are going to vary. So the questions and layout of, uh, of questions in your exam is going to change. And what we're trying to do is kind of stretch and challenge the, stu uh, the students as well by phrasing things different ways, using different terminology. So that actually then the students hopefully have covered as many bases as possible as well going into the exam. If everything was the exact same. By the time you go on to progress at higher levels, you, you're going to get caught out then when things suddenly take a massive jump up as well, where things are completely different from one paper to the next. So it's just trying to be as flexible and adaptable as possible, just like in work. Thanks, Alex. I, I couldn't have put it better myself, guys. I, I think an observation I see, if a student then has to resit, the resit exam is going to be different questions to the one you had last time. It is just the nature of exams and probably more so than ever now with a lot of them being computer generated on the day. There are a lot of different combinations of questions and different styles that can be thrown at you. So a bit of resilience. I think it's a reason to do as many practice questions as possible in the run up to your exam. So you've got the experience of all those different styles and to trust yourself in the exam. If something comes up that isn't quite what you're expecting, that doesn't quite look like you're expecting, 
Don't just give up and say, well, I can't answer it. Take a deep breath. I always say to a student, think, well, I could have got a nicer question, but I've got to answer the one that they've posed me and then do your best. Have a go. Go back to basics and hopefully you will pick up marks for your work. Excellent. That brings me on to the next question. The ability to show workings out and whether they are marked or whether there are marks available for them. Alex, in the, the, the sorts of courses and the exams that your students sit, are they advised to do workings out, layout calculations? Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the time as well is that, yes, you might get, if you show or get the correct final answer, um, you will get the marks in some cases, but a lot of it, they, the examiner wants to see the thought process. Uh, okay, that is behind it. They want to show the understanding of how you came to the final answer as well. And it's even silly little things that if it is like a technical question and you just put the final answer, you could do something really silly, like something I would do when I was a student, okay, many years ago, and maybe just put round something to the wrong decimal place where I've done everything technically right. But if I haven't shown my workings and I just present that final answer at the end, not in the way intended, I could lose all my marks and all my follow-on marks as well. Whereas if I show my workings nice and clearly, okay, I may only lose like half a mark in that case, just okay, with how I presented my answer. So you must uh, okay I can't really think of any module where okay the, the examiner can see your workings where I wouldn't advocate doing it I'll always make sure and even if you get to the end of the exam and you've got your workings there you can double check your answers to make sure that you've used the right model or the right formula to get to that as well whereas if you've just got an answer and you've just typed in a number how are you going to check what you've already done if you've got a few minutes left over Dave, maybe you, you could chip in there. Any any tips you share with students with laying out answers or showing workings? Yeah, it, aside from aside from everything that Alex talked about with um, you know, where you'll pick up marks and things like that, something that I talk about with all my students and my children is why it's good practice to go through a structured method to get to an answer. So if, if we're calculating income tax, uh, I'd be saying, right, add up all your sources of income, take off your personal allowances, get to, take off your personal allowances, get to your uh, your taxable income figure. And as part of that process, it's right, what's your non-savings income? What's your savings income? What's your dividend income? Total it up. Then you look at your personal allowance and you always say, am I entitled to the full personal allowance or do I earn too much money? Then you get to the next step. And if you learn it as I do this step, this step, this step, and rigorously every time you do the calculation, do the same thing, when you go into the exam, it just becomes natural. And it's so easy for people to take shortcuts. And I've seen so many students that have got a question where there's not very many marks and they just said, oh, they've got this sort of income it's going to be taxed at 20 percent it's like right you've got the personal allowance haven't you okay or they've got you know 110,000 pounds worth of income and they take off a full personal allowance because they forgot that the person's a higher earner and if you've got a process that you just follow and you go through a series of checks even though the working take a little bit longer it guarantees you the right answer and i'd rather it took you 30 seconds longer to complete a question and you guarantee it's right, then you're, you're taking shortcuts and you're missing really, really easy marks. So it's really important just to make sure you've got those methods and you follow them religiously and you show your workings every time you go through it. Sound advice and 
I, I agree with both of you. Couple of observations from me. One, if if the exam you are sitting doesn't give you the chance to show your workings, a lot of them have got free format boxes. They've got the equivalent of spreadsheets that you can do calculations on these days. But I'm particularly thinking about some of the short answer questions that you might see in a, a SEMA exam or in some of the AAT papers. That doesn't stop you doing the workings out for yourself just because there is no marks available for it. And if there are, you certainly need to be showing your workings and cross-referencing them. But I always encourage students to ask for a sheet of paper in the exam. I think most of the examining bodies and exam invigilations allow for that. So you can do your own calculations, you can do your own workings out, just to go through the process that Dave talked about, that kind of very structured layout, the ability to check your answers, as Alex mentioned, or if you've just put the number on the screen, you can't go back and, and do any double checking of it. So thank you guys, thank you for sharing. Next one, um, also talking about marks, but a lot of students these days asking questions about professional marks available in some of the exams. What's your take on what professional marks might be awarded for and their importance to students, hopefully, passing the exam? Maybe, Alex, I'll come to you again this time. So, yeah, um, I think what we're finding a lot more is now a lot of professional marks are being awarded, not just for like the kind of communication style um, of marks in terms of how we present, lay out our answers, but also kind of things like using the professional language as well. Um, so actually, so if it is something like a lot of AAT kind of level four papers, I'll write a report and we are structuring it as if it was a request from someone at work. So I think you have those kind of communication marks which pop up a lot, but certainly other ones as well. Um, my favourite ones are a little bit of kind of professional scepticism uh, is always quite a good one. So something that pops up in a lot of kind of strategy papers where something may be said or discussed and you've got to actually identify when something's going to discuss maybe uh, isn't correct. Uh, um, the other ones as well, um, aside from that, maybe a little bit of evaluation and analysis pops up quite a lot as well. Uh, and what was the other one that I was thinking as well? Oh, showing business acumen. Okay, too. So kind of like what we're a little bit we were chatting about earlier, but trying to show those um, those problem solving skills and that ability to be flexible and come up with solutions to problems that are very specific to those questions of so being adaptable. Cool, fantastic. Dave, what, what's your advice to students who are looking to gain those extra professional marks on offer? My, my prediction then, and you know I like to predict the future, is that over the next 10 years, we're going to see more and more of those professional marks added to exams and there will be fewer and fewer marks available for the technical content. And, and the reason this, we actually touched on this last week on the podcast, that accountancy as an industry is, is rapidly becoming automated. And as we've seen in particularly the ACCA and the ICW exams that I teach, you're allowed to use spreadsheets now which do a lot of the heavy lifting for you in terms of calculations. And in the workplace, I don't think anyone is sitting there with a piece of paper trying to work out an internal rate of return or to put together a budget or a forecast. It's all going to be automated. And where we add values, uh, value as accountants is through our ability to take that data, that information, and to present it in a certain way or to use it to help make decisions or even just to explain what it means to someone else within the business. 
And that's what we need our professional skills to do, all of those things. And that's what, as accountants, we are going to do more and more of it. So I think it's something that we're going to see more of in exams. And I think it's something in our professional lives, we're going to get, we're going to get, we're going to need to use it more and more. So it's something that I think, yeah, it's absolutely right that they're in the exam. And I just think there's going to be more and more of them over the coming years. Brilliant. Um, yes. My, my, my only piece of advice to add to that is just to think about who you are communicating to. The, the exam questions are usually framed around a scenario, but you will be asked to communicate with a certain group. And so you need to kind of think about the tone, think about the style of that communication. I encourage students to put in a very brief introduction just to kind of set the scene. Try to always come up with a conclusion. That's increasingly important if the examiner's actually asked you to evaluate it for the stakeholder group that you're talking to. They want you to be able to bring things to a decision or a recommendation at the end. Practice and look at the model answers. We spend lots of time putting model answers together and producing them to try and give students the feel of what a professional answer would look like. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that, that frustrates me is when um, students don't put themselves in that position and they attack a question and then they, they, I, I get really frustrated with things like this needs to be looked into in more detail. So, no, that's what you've been asked to do in the exam. In the exam, you've been asked to look into the finance of this business and give some recommendations. Your recommendation shouldn't be, I can't do my job, can someone do it for me? your recommendation should be, well, what are you actually going to tell the board of directors to do? So I always think putting yourself in the position that the exam's putting you in. If you work for the business, you should be thinking like you work for the business. Half the time, people are kind of like, yeah, I want to tell someone else to do my job and delegate. That's not a very good thing to do in the exam. In a way linked, but a slight variation on the question. A lot of students now are facing exams which have got dual tasks or elements, some numbers and calculations, some written tasks. And, and I'm thinking particularly at the transition students make when they move on in AAT from level three to level four. The question I certainly get asked a lot is, I'm not very good at the written questions, Ben. Can I just miss those out and still get the marks needed to pass in the numbers bit? For, for the benefit of the listenership, both Dave and Alex have put their hands to their head saying, oh, my goodness, um, you can visualise that emoji for me. Um, Dave, what, what, what's your thoughts on that one? No, this you can't. Written. No. <laughs> you're, you're, if you don't do the written parts, then I think just if you can do the maths, the, the marks allocated to the written marks are, are, if you don't achieve them, enough to send you below 70% and you're going to fail the exam. So absolutely not. You cannot miss them out. Um, as you know, kind of Alex was saying earlier, that they, they are, you know, there's only a finite number of questions that they can actually ask you um, in terms of the, the scenarios they can put you in. Um, with, with AAT, as I've, you know, I, I've said every time I've been asked about AAT written questions, so listeners are going to be bored rigid with me saying it, is I always use the, the my mum test. My mum's not an accountant. Can she understand what I've written? If my mum can understand it, then it's a good answer. If my mum can't understand it, it's probably a really bad, confusing answer. And I need to think of a better way to put my ideas across. So it, it's something that it does take time. And it, for me, that's the big step from level three to level four. It's not technically huge jump in terms of the calculations you've got to do, but it's a big mindset shift from, 
I'm processing lots of data at level three to someone else has processed the data for me. I've got to explain what that data means so someone else can make a really good decision based on it. Alex, anything to add about the importance um, of written work these days? Yeah, I, not only probably would you, if you didn't do the written parts, are you not going to get enough marks anyway? But um, the amount of pressure one you'd be putting yourself under for the technical parts and just the calculations would be crazy. And the amount of students who are extremely strong in class, who do really well, uh, even them students will make technical mistakes. Uh, okay, no matter, Even if they know the syllabus perfectly, they will, there will be things they don't spot. There will be little errors that they make. And if they're making mistakes, if you're going in with an attitude of, well, look, I'm just going to nail the numbers and not do the theory. Well, what are the odds of you then actually getting full marks and all the technical bit? It's just not going to happen. Um, so you really need to do both. And I would always say as well, the written work is there to kind of help supplement and give you a chance to show your knowledge of what the technical of what the technical numbers are. Show off a little bit, show what you can link the two together. Uh, okay, that you can actually not just do the calculation, but you can explain what it means and the impact on the business. So um, they are sometimes a little bit more time pressured, absolutely. But that's, again, part of the test to make see if you can look and read and go and digest the scenario and plan your answer and do it in a, uh, in a time efficient manner. So um, you must do both. But it's, it's a great chance, I always think, to show off a little bit your knowledge and to really kind of give like rounded answers. So please do both. And I'm, I'm sure you'll both nod, but but practice really does make perfect with those written tasks. The, the first one you do is really, really hard and you miss things and you're struggling to write. It's no surprise that the more students practice, the more written answers they, they write, the better they get, the more familiar they get with the style. They remember things that they can add. They're aware of the greater depth of their writing that they can go into. Certainly, we've got a couple of previous episodes of the podcast. If you're struggling with written tasks, go back and listen to them, where, where myself and Dave have gone through some quite detailed tips on how to structure written answers, how to, to get extra marks. Um, yeah. Perfect. Next question, guys. Um, linked to all of the, the stuff we've talked about, I often get asked by students, what mark should they be aiming for in the exam? And, and how do they know from their preparation that they're ready to hopefully go and obtain that level? Dave, what's your thoughts on, on the, the, the mark a student should be aiming for? OK, so what mark should they be, be, be aiming for? I think it very much depends on one on the exam, because as we said earlier, different exams have got different pass marks. I've got this general rule of thumb that... Um, Based on the level of knowledge you've got and the amount of question practice that you've got, um, there is a certain mark that you deserve. So say, Ben, that based on your knowledge of audit and you know your, your ability to answer questions, I think that your you know your kind of like your your average mark should be say thirty percent. Okay, let's just say for argument's sake, it's thirty percent. Now, uh, based on that, I think that. If you go into the exam and it's a really good exam for you and it, it, it asks you loads of questions that are really in your wheelhouse, I reckon you could get a 5% uplift. So you could get 35. But if it's a really tough exam, I think it would drop down to, say, another 5% to 25%. So I think wherever you are, there's a range of about 10 marks that your exam could sit in. So if you've just done, let's say, a, you know, a, a mock exam and you've got 
55%. Okay, now that could be the absolute best it possible exam ever. So if you go into the exam and it's an absolute stinker for you, you could drop down to 45. So I would always like to see in say mock exams and things like that, if you're achieving a good 10 marks over the pass mark of whatever exam you're doing, I think you go into that exam and you should pass. You know, it would only be the case that, you know, you are struck down with some sickness bug two hours, you know, halfway through the exam and you have to run out to be ill that I think is going to cause you a problem. So that's what I tend to look at as a rule of thumb. If you're getting 10 marks over the pass mark in your mock exams, you should be good for the exam. If you're getting 50 percent in your mock exam before the exam, it's a bit of a coin flip as to, you know, whether you're going to go into the exam at that point in time and whether it's. An exam is a similar level of complexity for you or whether it's one that's a bit harder. So that, that's that's what I would tend to think in mock exams. Be, you know, if you're getting 10 percent over the pass mark, you should pass the real exam. But if, if you're getting just below the pass mark, then you're praying for a better exam. Or, or exam that's more friendly for you, should we say. And I suppose that that leads on to my next question, which I'll, I'll come to Alex first this time. Um, Students doing mock exams, I quite often have a student saying, oh, I didn't do the mock exam by the deadline because I wasn't feeling ready for it. I was scared I wasn't going to pass the mock. Alex, what, what's your view and pep talk to students to encourage them to do the mocks in a, a realistic deadline time frame? Talk I've done hundreds of times this one. So um, um, I think the first thing that students always think is that when we set kind of mock and mock deadlines, that they always think it's solely for us and it's not, it's for them. And a lot of students will be scared about even just doing a mock exam, uh, okay, because they think it will, uh, dare I say, expose weaknesses, but that's what they're there to do. And they're there to hopefully help you kind of, first of all, gauge your progress and see whereabouts you are, so give you that little bit of self-awareness. But hopefully it might only show you not only what you're good at and actually maybe what may surprise you as to what you're picking up marks on, but actually highlight areas on the syllabus that you suddenly think, oh, OK, section C or task five on this paper. That's where I'm always losing my marks. So it can help you focus your revision over the subsequent coming weeks as well. So I think it can be really helpful for that and help you to kind of plan your revision going forwards and give you a kind of a starting point for setting milestones in terms of your revision in the next three, four weeks, maybe. Dave, I, I know it's a, a continual annoyance of yours that students <laughs> maybe don't do the mocks that have been set for them. What, what, what's your view? What can you give or share with students to encourage them to, to do the mocks? I think every study out there that looks at exam success and marks on the exam shows a correlation between the amount of practice questions you do and the mark you get in the exam. Um, we see it, you know, with our data, looking at people that complete exams versus, part, uh, versus success rates, and it's been studied all over the world, and it's shown the more practice questions you do, the more successful you'll be in the exam. I, I always think that you should embrace questions that you find difficult. So if you attempt a question and you find it difficult and that causes you to look at that subject, to review it again, to go through the question a second time, to make sure you fully understand it, that is the best possible use of your time in, in, in kind of that period where you're trying to build your knowledge ready for the exam. So it, what you really want in a really bizarre way is you want to do a practice exam as soon as possible and you want to get loads of it wrong. You want it to be really challenging because it's highlighting where you need to do extra work. 
Okay, the last thing you really want to do is have an easy mock exam where you get everything 100% right. And it's kind of, right, well, I know everything. What else do I do? So you, you should be thinking that I've done that mock. Brilliant. I've only got 40% or brilliant. I've got 30%. Okay, that means that there are areas that I can look at right now and improve. Uh, but it's hard because, you know, no one likes getting those low marks when you know there is, you know, possibility of getting 100% out there. And if you're getting 25%, it doesn't feel great. But it's much, much better to get 25% eight weeks before an exam than it is to get 25% in the real exam. I would also just say on top of that as well, it, once you've done that first one, next time you do it, try and get 40% and just try and gradually build it up. And that's so much more motivating then than just sitting at home and worrying, thinking, actually, I'm not really too sure how I'm doing. So it's a great way to kind of then start that motivation. And I think we've all seen that, haven't we, with students where we look at their mock exam submissions and we look at their marks over time and we say, all oh, right, that, that, you know, that, that person got 20% with their first mark. Oh, look, they've got 32% with the second mark. They've done a fourth mock and they're up to 40%. And if you see that progression, I know if they're working that, that, that hard and they're coming to me, say, for a revision course, that revision course is going to get their, it's going to rocket their score. If they're not doing anything, not doing anything, or you know, not really making an effort, and not, I'm not seeing that improvement. Well, that's sometimes where we need to intervene and say, well, you know, how can we help you? Because we can't see that kind of improvement. So it helps us to be able to help students as well. And uh, the correlation between question practice and exam success is is clear for all of us, and we we see it year in year out with students. Dave, just quickly with you. Where would you signpost students for to, to get extra questions? Where can they go and find past papers, practice papers? Okay. Um, if, if they're a first intuition student and you're, you're part of our first intuition family, contact your tutor. Whoever your tutor is, contact them and, you know, ask them the question. You'll, you should already, as part of the team, have a, a big question bank, online resources, all of those kind of things. If you need more then see your tutor. I mean, I know that I can, uh, I'm always happy to, um, to, to dig out extra questions for students, things like that. Um, if you're not, you can look at um, the, the institutes. So you can go to the ACCA's website, you can go to AAT's website, uh, and you can get additional questions, mock exams, loads of material from those websites. If you're going outside of the institute's websites, be really careful because it is possible to download um, a kind of ACCA style questions or old ACCA past exam questions from other websites, but the syllabus might have changed since they were a, a live exam, particularly if you're doing a tax, a law, a financial reporting, an audit exam. Just be aware that the, the, the legislation changes and, and that may mean the questions that are set there are, um, are, are, are no longer relevant. And I'm also going to say one other um, one other thing that you can do, and this is something that a colleague of mine did. So this is for some, if you are really struggling for questions. Um, ben, have you used ChatGPT yet? I haven't used it yet, although at least three people this week have mentioned it to me. And I know some of our colleagues in London have been looking at it. OK, so I went on there the other day and I asked it. I, I said, can you give me five questions about activity, five numerical questions about activity-based costing with answers. 
And it gave me five really nice numerical questions about activity-based costing with solutions at the end. It was super clever. So if you know the kind of things that you want to practice, you could even go on somewhere like that and make your own questions up. I thought that was super, super clever as a, a way of using that artificial intelligence. A lot of people talk about how you can use it to cheat in exams and cheat in coursework and things like that. But you can actually use it to help you revise um, for um, for your exams by giving you questions. Really, really clever. Wow, there's some homework for me. I'm going to try that when I'm in the office, maybe tomorrow afternoon. I've got some revision classes coming up and I'm always thinking up questions and mini quizzes. I might see if I can get a bit of AI to do it for me. Um, one for you, Alex. Quick fire one. I know in your role you are involved in planning and scheduling our courses. You've just done the next round of course dates. Someone in the chat box. We have got a live group of students with us this evening. I'm not going to name them, but asking how long do you reckon it should take? between starting a unit and sitting the exam? Well, I know that does vary, but roughly, what's the kind of time frame when you're looking at scheduling the classes? Um, usually we're looking on the basis of somewhere between kind of two and four weeks on average, I'd probably say. Uh, okay, usually with the quickest would be kind of between 10 days and two weeks after the end of the course. Um, again, this is why you do your mock exam. So you actually know then if you're gonna be ready in, in those next two weeks. If not, I really wouldn't be looking anything further past four or five weeks, um, purely because you would have the next module due to start. And again, there's so many resources out there, but you kind of kind of need to otherwise go back to the kind of pre-recorded lectures that we have online and using all of the other facilities and testing core knowledge again. If you don't feel comfortable uh, okay, after five, six weeks of actually uh, okay, revising, uh, okay, so usually I'd say about anywhere between two and four on average, but of course that varies student to student. But if it gets longer than five, six weeks, um, I'd say that you you're kind of there must be some gaps in technical knowledge sooner. Brilliant. Uh, okay, but everyone's different. So so that's after you've studied all of the stuff. So if, if it was a yeah. distance learning student, plan to get through the course material and that's yeah. probably going to take you four or five weeks. And then what you're saying is once you've been through your folder, you really want to be targeting the exam within two to five weeks after you've completed the material. Yeah. This is all once the content is the actual technical content has been worked through and is complete. Because uh, okay. um, it varies very much, especially if it's someone studying from home, how long it's going to take them to get through the course content, maybe. So everything really from the end of um, the course notes. And, and I suppose something, particularly the distance learning students might not realise in the classroom environment, we very much structure different stages of the course programme. So we have a tuition course where we basically go through the technical content of the folder. And that probably takes um, two, three, four, five weeks, depending on the unit. Then we have a specific revision period where we practice questions and we do recall stuff and go back over things. And I think sometimes distance learning students maybe lose sight of the, the potential two stages of that and try and do it all in one go and then sit the exam. Um, next question. I'm conscious we're coming up against time. I've got more questions than we're going to get through this evening. So we'll probably come back for a, a round two at some point. Um, Dave, one I get a lot. Um, sadly, things go wrong on the day of the exam or in the lead up to the exam. Um, might have had an illness just before the exam, might have had the, the sad, sudden death of a family member. It happens, doesn't it? You might have had issues getting to the exam 
or even during the exam, something might have gone wrong. There might have been a power cut, the software crashes. What's your advice for students when they come out of an exam if they, they know they have been impeded in their performance? Okay, so if it's something to do with the exam itself, if it's something to do with the exam software, the invigilation of the exam, um, if, uh, if there have been traffic issues which have meant you haven't been able to arrive at the exam until, um, until later than its start date, uh, we've seen issues with weather where people have had snow and ice and as a result have arrived an hour late to the exam. Any of those things, the minute you finish the exam, report them. Report them to your institute and tell them that you were disadvantaged in the exam because it simply isn't fair that you are assessed in the same way as someone that set the exam elsewhere in the country and didn't have those issues. So you must do that the moment you come out of the exam. Okay, Don't leave it two weeks. Don't leave it a month. Definitely don't wait until you've got your results. So no, as soon as you're out of that room, I would get I, I, I would get in touch with, with your relevant institute. And they will, they will look at it. Um, and, you know, if you tell them that there was an accident on the A14 and you were sat in traffic for 45 minutes, which meant you got to the exam 20 minutes late, they're going to check that, that, you know, there was actually an accident. You were actually late and you're not just trying to pull a fast one. Um, if you tell people in an ICAW exam that, oh, I typed in a written question, it took me half an hour to type it and then the system just deleted it. And, you know, I want to raise that as an issue. The ICAW do measure your keystrokes and they will know what you typed, you know, throughout that exam. And if you're lying, then number one, they won't take any notice of it. But secondly, they will take disciplinary action against you. So make sure there is a legitimate issue that's impacted you and then yeah, report it straight away. If it's an AAT exam and it's one that you're doing on demand in an exam centre and there was something that happened in that exam room that meant you couldn't perform as well as you think you should have been able to perform, immediately raise it with the exam centre, raise it with the AAT. Okay? If, if it's something that they say, well, this is not an issue that should have impacted you in the, in the exam, it might be with the case they ignore it, but nine times out of ten, they're going to take it seriously and they will take into account when they give you your mark. Yeah, do it through the official channels, do it as soon as possible and keep as much evidence for yourself as possible to provide a, a full and thorough review. But don't tell lies because they do catch students out and increasingly the awarding bodies are, are looking at what people are appealing for. Mm -hmm. And not only will they reject your claim for any dispensation, any adjustment to your marks, as Dave says, they will also take it very seriously as an ethical breach, which might not only jeopardise your ability to pass the exam, but more worryingly, it might mean that you are disciplined by the Institute and ultimately you could be barred from sitting exams, which is where nobody wants to go. Um, sound advice. One more rapid fire one at the end to finish up with chaps. Sadly, students do fail exams. Let's be honest, it, it happens. Um, one of the things I get emailed a lot, I failed my exam. The pass mark was 70 and I got 69. The pass mark was 50. I got 48 or 49. Should I pay for a review and investigation by the awarding body? Alex, what's your, your usual stance on that one for students? Um, no, um, there's so much moderation that's gone through the marking of all of those exams, unless there was something um, where something technical has actually gone wrong previously, like what Dave has just been saying. Everything is so scrutinised and all the markers 
they go through so much checking uh, again and moderating of of their marking and so much sampling that happens all that they really do for a lot of syllabus is, is just retotal your score and add up uh, the marks that you got and just really just make sure it all adds up to the same total that you've got now so unless there is any kind of extenuating circumstances or you've had any potential issues i i can't see i've never for a lot of paper syllabuses i've never actually heard of a score being changed uh, okay on appeal uh, okay, where someone didn't already have a claim dave final words from you what's your standard response to that question the ability to appeal and review your score Okay, occasionally, um, and, and I, I would need to check the institutes, but occasionally the, the institutes, or not occasionally, some of the institutes will give you a little bit more detail of where you fell down on a question-by-question question basis. So that there is a little bit more information that you can get. Um, I, I know people are kind of looking for, will they give me that extra mark? Very, very unlikely. I know it has happened occasionally, but very, very rarely does it happen. For me, the most important thing that you can do if you if you are, are a lover of filling out forms because that's what you're going to have to do to get it there is a brilliant form that i know that, that your team use ben when people are unsuccessful in exam that we actually um issue to our students if they're unsuccessful where they do they undertake some self-reflection to say to go through the reasons why they may have been unsuccessful in the exam and i think if you honestly go through the different reasons why you may have been unsuccessful and whether that applies to you you will come away from that recognizing where your weaknesses were in your preparation i think the best thing you can do if you're unsuccessful in the exam is just do that real honest self-reflection where did i go wrong and then base your plan on those areas you went wrong so i'm sure that's something if, if listeners want want a copy of one of those forms i'm more than happy to to kind of email people back so that they can go through it because it's for me the most valuable thing you can do i think it's really valuable even if you pass the exam to reflect on what went when well what went badly what caused me stress you know where in the exam could i do i think i could have performed better so i can change my approach for next time brilliant well that is bang on seven o'clock thank you both for your honest responses and answers i knew you would be the the guys that have, have got the that the the response that our students need to hear um for anyone listening they were some pretty rapid fire discussions on some topics that we have covered previously on back episodes of the podcast so if you want more information about our views on mock exams and how to use them we've covered that previously if sadly you get a result that is not a pass, we've we've talked on the podcast on a couple of episodes about how to deal with failing exams and, and what next steps to take. We've talked about planning your studies and timeframes between starting and sitting the exam. We've talked about written tasks and how to pick up those extra professional marks. So go back and listen to them. Hopefully, though, that episode's been a, a useful snapshot of some of the things that we hear very regularly from our students. If you want us to talk about a topic, please drop myself and Dave an email. We're always interested in your ideas, in what you want us to cover, in guests that you maybe want us to see if we can go and get. Thank you for joining us, live studio audience. And I will finish off by handing over Dave to say the final goodbye for this evening. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks to everyone that's chosen to download and listen, whether you are out running, listening, walking your dog, 
or we know those people that like to have a nice long soak in a bath and listen to us on the podcast. Um, if you get a chance, could you leave us a review? Um, so we always like to see your comments. Um, and if you've got anything out of this evening and you, you have enjoyed it and you've got a friend that you think may well enjoy listening to, uh, listen to things we've discussed, please feel free to share this podcast far and wide with friends, family, colleagues, anyone that you know, even that strange person that you see when you go out running in the morning that might be interested. But until next week, everyone stay safe and we will be back in seven days time.